All right, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, okay? You're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 here in just a a moment. And uh, we've been in a series here on why Israel matters, and today we're kind of wrapping it up with Dr. Chad Brand. He's been here before, and on the back we've given you a little bit of his bio. And last night I was sitting right down here, and uh, I want you to know, just buckle your seatbelts. This is really, this is just really going to be great. You're going to enjoy this. And not only enjoy it, but you're going to learn something in a really fresh way. And I'm just excited that, that Chad is with us. I want to welcome those of you that are over in the, the venue. And I'm just grateful for Jared and Stephen leading worship over there and the, and the team. But uh, right now, would you welcome up Dr. Chad Brand right now? Would you do that? Well, it's uh, great to be back with you. I was here a year ago, and uh, I'm sure many of you forgot that, but that's all right. It's great to be back with you here again. I've enjoyed uh, everything about my weekend here so far. I've enjoyed the baptisms both last night and this morning. In fact, as I saw your pastor baptizing in a t-shirt, I was reminded of an opportunity I had some years ago. I was teaching at a college in South Carolina, and I was also interim pastor of a church about 80 miles uh, from the school where I taught, and so I would drive on Wednesday nights and drive on Sundays and spend all day there. And one Sunday morning I drove in, and our, our church at the time met at the YMCA. We were building a building that didn't have it complete yet, and so we met at the Y, which meant that when we baptized, we had to baptize in the pool. And uh, that would always get the little kids excited. Mommy, Mommy, can I be baptized next week? You know, everybody <laughs> wants to jump in the pool at the Y. And on one Sunday, I arrived, and uh, the deacons met me out front, and as I saw them there, I thought, I think I forgot something here. They're waiting to remind me, and so they, they met me as I came out of my car, and they said, do you remember we have a baptism today? And uh, like your pastor, we didn't have robes, at least at that time, to baptize in, and I suddenly remembered that, no, I, I didn't. The only shirt I have is the one that I'm wearing, and as you saw up there, you get pretty wet when you baptize people, especially in the YMCA pool. I said, well, I may have something in my car. So I went back over to my car, and the only thing I had was my teenage son's Led Zeppelin T-shirt with the big <laughs> swan. And so I baptized that day with uh, about a 60-year-old guy I baptized. He looked at me and says, this is going to take, you think? I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if the Lord will honor the Led Zeppelin T-shirt. I said, look, it's your heart, man. That's all that matters. And so... Uh, uh, there's still some pictures floating around out there of me doing that baptism. I hope my boss at Southern Seminary never sees them. It's really great to be with you, and uh, uh, the, the topic of the day is one that we could have almost come to any passage in the Bible, but I wanted to turn to Acts 1 and 2, and then we're going to range out a little bit also and look at, look at and think about some other passages of Scripture. At Christmas time, in many churches, we sing a Christmas carol or a hymn in which you will find the phrase, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, speaking of Jesus. And of course, the hymn is focused on Jesus in the manger, all right? So that here's this little baby that's been born, King of the Jews, Messiah, the the hope of Israel, all of those uh, phrases that come to us from the Bible about who this is. And uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee 
tonight, and I think that's a wonderful phrase, almost, almost one of those phrases you think, well, that guy was almost inspired by the Lord to, uh, to pin that little phrase. Not all the hymns have uh, such wonderful phrases, but that one certainly does. But when we think of um, Jesus, we think of, of the Lord himself, uh, we realize that the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament anticipates him. And we have, of course, passages that are messianic in nature, uh, you know, the suffering servant out of Isaiah 53. Uh, you could think of a number of passages that actually speak of a coming Messiah, but even the parts of the Old Testament that aren't specifically messianic or that don't give a prediction of a coming Messiah, they still breathe this air of one is coming, and this one who is coming <coughs> will, be a, will be greater than anyone who's ever come. This one who is coming will not fail in the way that Adam failed. This one who is coming will not fail in the way that Israel failed, say, in the wilderness or throughout its history. This one who is coming is one who will be obedient to the Lord, and he will be the one who will redeem us. He will be the one who will save us. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. And that's exactly what we, what we find when we come to the Lord. And in fact, I'd like to kind of expand the idea of hopes and fears. That, uh, that hymn is about the, the baby in the manger. But when we think about the significance of Christ, we need to think about the significance of him in a broader way than just the birth of the baby in the manger of Bethlehem. We need to think of the fact that it is his birth that will save us. It is his life. It is his teachings. It is the healing ministry that he was engaged in during his life. It was his ministry. It was his arrest on that fateful Friday. It was his death for our sin. It was the resurrection. It is the ascension of Jesus. In addition to what the rest of the New Testament teaches about the significance of Christ for the Christian experience. It is all of that. That's what, that's what Jesus has come to do for us. And when we think about his significance, the significance of his life, we think about all of those things. Think about the fact that the entire Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. In other words, the entire Old Testament anticipates what we would today call the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when Jesus comes, it is in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectation. And so here are, here's the presentation of his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when we think about the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament is, a, is an attempt to express to us, to the readers of, of those various letters and other things, but also to us, to express to us the significance of the life of Jesus for our lives and for history. Uh, we say, you know, that Jesus died for my sins, and that's true. We say that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be saved, and that's true. We sing the little song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's true. But there's so much more. Because the rest of the New Testament tells us that Jesus is not just my Savior, not just our Savior. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the, he's the King of the cosmos. And so the significance of his life, death, ministry, teachings, healings, resurrection, and ascension, and everything else that the New Testament says about him is just something that needs to seize our lives and grip our hearts in a way that will transform our character. And so I want us to see a little bit about how that works in the pages of the book of Acts and even in a broader way as well. One of the things that we find when we come to the pages of the Bible, as we just start reading through it, and I encourage you at some point in your life, 
if you've never had the opportunity to, to do this yet, to just start reading at the beginning and read all the way through. Now, there's also all, all kinds of strategies for reading the Bible. You don't have to do it just that way, but there's some kind of impact that it makes on you uh, when you do it that way, because as you read it through, you read it through in the way that God has given it to us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so on. That's the way that he's given it to us. It's not all chronological, but it is given to us in a certain kind of logical order. And when you do it that way, one of the things that you'll discover is that as you work your way through the Bible, you'll find that there are places where you turn a corner. Or to put it differently, there are places where you open a door. And when you open a door, of course, you, you turn a hinge. Okay? There, there are various hinges in the Bible. And one of the things that you discover as you, as you turn those hinges is that you've walked into a new place and you can't really go back. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first real hinge text. <coughs> Up to that point, God had created everything, <coughs> created everything, placed the man, the woman in the garden, gave them a command to have dominion over the world and take care of the world, and everything was cool, and then they turned the hinge. And the hinge that they turned was the hinge of sin. And God had told them, you can eat of all of this. The whole world's yours. It's just one little spot in this world that's mine. Just one little spot. One little place. You can have all of it. Everything that's out there. You can eat of the trees. You can, you can be involved in this world in any way that you want to. But there's a little place there. I want you to leave that for me. And, of course, the tempter came. And they partook, Adam and Eve, they partook of the fruit. And once they did that, everything changed. It said that they knew that they were naked and they hid themselves from each other. And when they heard God coming into the garden, they hid themselves from him. And from that point on, everything changed. By the way, this is just kind of a little extra piece for the ladies here. Uh, even though Eve was the one first tempted and she partook and she gave to her husband, the rest of the Bible doesn't blame her. It blames Adam. Yeah, I got a couple of amens out of that. All right. It's good stuff to know, right? Uh, it, it raises a really interesting question. What if Eve had eaten and Adam had not? And I don't know the, the, the definitive answer to that. Uh, I'm a professor of theology, and uh, sometimes theologians think they know everything, and I'm just here to tell you that we don't always know everything. Okay, PhD just means piled higher and deeper. Okay, I are one, and, and I'm here to tell you that that's the case. Uh, but my, my own personal opinion is that if, uh, if Eve had eaten and Adam had not, there wouldn't have been a fall. That's, that's, think about that. Just a little thing. You put on the side of your bulletin and go home and talk about it over dinner. Okay, someday. All right. So we have this hinge text where, where they eat and then nothing, you can't go back. You just can't go back. Once that happened, you can't. There, there, by the way, there are experiences like that in our lives. Once you cross a, a, a certain border, you, you can be redeemed, but you can't go back. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Well, there are a number of other hinge texts. We come to the great flood. Okay, where God <coughs> judges all of humanity with the exception of eight people who are saved in the ark. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, um, and that's a hinge text. Or we come to Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abram, Abraham, as he will be known later on in Genesis, God calls out Abraham. And what happens there is something very significant because before that, God was just kind of working with humanity in general. You know, he'd try to find somebody like Noah, a faithful guy. <coughs> but beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God isn't working with humanity in general. He's working with one family, the family of Abraham. 
And the, even though in the rest of the Old Testament, you occasionally have a Gentile person that shows up, okay? You'll, you'll see them. I'm not going to give you a list of names right here, but you, you can figure that out. Uh, for the most part, 99% of the rest of the Old Testament after that passage, God's working with one family, the family of Abraham. And not even his entire family, because Abraham had a son, Ishmael, and God's not working through Ishmael. Ishmael gets blessed because he's the son of Abraham, but God's not carrying out the plan of redemption through him, only through Isaac. And then not even just through Isaac's family, because remember, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God is not carrying out the plan of redemption through Esau, only through uh, Jacob, okay? And, and the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the rest of the Old Testament focuses on this. There's a, that's a hinge text. Once you get to Abraham, you've got to realize some doors have been shut, and now we have to follow this particular tra trajectory. And so then we follow that trajectory. I could give you some more hinge text, but just in order to save some time here this morning, uh, we find the next great hinge, the next great turning point when we come to Matthew 1. Because there, we, have, we are told that, that this child is going to be born. And you can find it in Matthew 1. You can look at John 1. Matthew 1 and John 1 tell the same story, but they tell it somewhat differently. <coughs> Matthew talks about a virginal conception, and John talks about the word becoming flesh, but they're essentially telling us the same story, that now there's a new turning point, and the new turning point is that God is going to be working through one particular Israelite. Not all of the sons of Jacob, not all the descendants of, of Jacob, but one Israelite. Jesus then becomes the focal point of the Old Testament expectation, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And then we find, we read through the four Gospels, and we find how that kind of works out in his life, in his ministry. He believes that he's the one that, that has been sent by God. Uh, if any man is thirsty, come to me and let him drink. Wow, what an astounding statement. Nobody in the Old Testament ever said that because nobody in the Old Testament was the focus of all of the Old Testament expectation. They were just people pointing in the direction. That's the way you should go. God's over there. This is one who says, no, I'm not pointing to anything else. I'm pointing to me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the focus of it. He's the, he's the hopes and fears of all the years. And then, of course, as we find in the culmination of the gospel stories, um, he gets arrested and he gets killed. Oh, my goodness. Now what? Now what about the hopes and fears of all the years? Well, now what has happened is he's, 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 uh, it's like a novel. It's like a great story. If you'd never been told the story as a kid, imagine not having grown up in the church, and then someday uh, you got a letter in the mail, and you'd never heard about Christianity, you'd never heard about the Bible, never heard about Jesus. Somebody just sent you one of the Gospels in the mail, and you read it, and you get come down to that one point where he's killed, and you say, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? But of course, there is a resolution. And the resolution is the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then the question we want to ask is, what's the next hinge? And the next hinge is found in Acts 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 1, we find Luke writing these words. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts 1, 1. Until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Verse 4. Then gathering together his disciples, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but he said to wait for the Father, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you've heard of from me. The Father's going to do something. There's a promise. The promise has come uh, from the Old Testament, but the promise had also come through John the Baptist. All right, he's going he's to tell them what that is in verse, in verse 5. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I know most of your translations say with, but the best translation is in. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit, just like you're baptized in water. You're not baptized with water, okay? Uh, our, our, we have some differences between uh, what I, as a Southern Baptist, would, would uh, believe about baptism or how I'd practice baptism. I, we don't do the three things. All right, but it's, it's great. I've enjoyed it. I even took a little video of one of those baptisms this morning, Pastor, <coughs> so that I could <clears throat> show people back in, in, in my, my part of the woods that there are people that actually do that. They, three times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, but we, we certainly agree on it's in water. It's not just, we won't just throw some water at you or drive you through a car wash with the top down or something like that, okay? So this is what Jesus says. John baptized in water, but you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom? And he said, uh, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And I don't know that many of you know that that little statement in verse 8 you're going to be baptized in the Spirit. And then he mentions Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. <coughs> that that basically is an outline of the rest of the book of Acts. <clears throat> and it's not only an outline of the rest of the book of Acts. It's an outline of God's grand purpose. That he begins with the narrowing down to Abraham. Down to one of the sons of Abraham, Isaac. Down to one of the sons of Isaac, Jacob. And having narrowed his focus like that, he eventually narrows his focus even more radically and dramatically to the one Israelite, Jesus, only to expand to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which he essentially brings us into the story. Now, I want to flesh this out a little bit for the few moments that we have this morning by looking at, well, we're going to sort of skip our way through chapter 2. And, and here's, here's the basic thing to keep in mind as we're going through this. In the ministry of Jesus, Jesus was the spirit-empowered instrument of God to bring salvation first to the Jews and then to the entire earth. And one of the fascinating things, I'm, and sometime, Pastor, you have to invite me back and we'll just do a little study on the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. It is one of the most fascinating things that I have ever found in the pages of God's Word because the number of passages in the Gospels that tell us, and Jesus empowered by the Spirit did, and Jesus empowered by the Spirit did. Uh, you can think of the one place where Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is among you. And that one kind of sticks in our head. But there are literally dozens of passages in the Gospels that remind us that the things that Jesus did in his ministry, he did by the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus was sinless and Jesus did miracles and all that because, after all, he was God. The New Testament never gives that as the explanation. The primary explanation it gives over and over again is filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and then it tells you something that he did. But what we're finding here in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 1, remember the words he said about the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. What we're finding here is that the Spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus is now going to become the Spirit-empowered ministry of the church that will expand beyond Israel into Samaria and into the ends of the earth as well. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All right. Uh, the, 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 I think the best way to understand these early chapters of Acts is to see them as a kind of mini-series. All right, I love watching mini-series. My wife and I do. We, usually we wait till after they're all done, and then we get Netflix and watch them, you know, one night after another, so we don't have to wait for a week to see the next thing that happens. And uh, so I love mini-series. And what we see in Acts chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 10 is a kind of a mini-series that shows how God is using the hope and fears of all the years, the atonement offered by Jesus as a way of expanding the Old Testament promises made to Israel and applying them to all of the world. Because it starts here in Acts chapter 2 with what we sometimes call the Jewish Pentecost. It's the day of Pentecost, and it's uh, uh, essentially Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration. But then when we get to Acts chapter 8, it extends to the Samaritans, and Acts chapter 10 and 11, it extends to the Gentiles. So now, all those wonderful Old Testament promises are not simply promises applied to Israel, but they're promises that, that are, are going to be applied to us. Probably not too many Jewish people in here today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. There might be a few. My wife thinks that she's a descendant of one of the ten lost tribes. I always tell her, good luck with that, honey. Okay. Maybe she is. Uh, maybe, maybe more of us are. I don't know. Uh, but probably not too many Jewish people in here. But the wonderful thing that we find in the pages of, of the New Testament is that God has taken the wonderful promises to Israel, and he's applied them to us. Now, I, there's, some sti there's still some things that God has reserved for Israel. I'll get to that right at the very end. But we have become part of the, the, er the inheritors of the covenant of the Lord. I want to flesh that out with you here uh, this morning. When we come to Acts chapter 2, what we begin to hear, if you can just listen to it, with your heart is the creaking of another hinge. It's the creaking of another hinge. Jesus uh, predicts it in chapter 1. Stay in Jerusalem because something's about to happen. Oh, what? Well, you're going to have to wait and see. But something's about to happen. And, of course, as we come to chapter 2, we read these verses that we just read, and we find out that on the day of Pentecost... On the day of Pentecost, they were gathered together. Pentecost, of course, comes 50 days after Passover. <coughs> All right? Jesus had stayed with them for 40 days after his crucifixion, which means that he's telling them, stay in Jerusalem. They're going to stay there another 10 days. <coughs> Pardon me. After another 10 days, some wonderful things are about to happen. The day of Pentecost was the day of the celebration of the first fruits. That's what it's called in the Old Testament. And the day of the first fruits was an, an offering that the Israelites, or now the Jews by the time we come to this point in history, an offering that the Jews would, would bring. It takes place in the month of June. And by that time, uh, the farmers had planted their crops, and some things are starting to come up. And the idea is that whatever's come up already, you go ahead and you harvest that, and you take it down to Jerusalem and you give it to the priests. Okay, well, why would we do that? I mean, what about our kids? Well, uh, if you, if you make an offering of the first fruits, what you're doing in essence is you're saying, I have enough faith in God to believe that if I give him from the first of my produce, that he will provide the rest. I don't have to hoard it. 
in fear that maybe some other things won't come in. Here, Lord, here's the first. I'm not waiting to give you what's left over after I've had a good time and had my friends over for a party and all that, and well, what's left in my pocket now. No, I'm going to give you off the top, and I trust you that you will take care of the rest. That's what the first fruits was all about. Now, the rabbis in Jesus' day had calculated, and rabbis are, uh, in those days were really good at doing math and, you know, sort of trying to figure out how things are all connected. They wrote a lot of huge books. There's a thing called the Babylonian Talmud, 60 volumes, takes up this much space on the shelf, and it's a commentary on the Ten Commandments, okay? So they were, they, they, they tended to have a lot of conversations and talk a lot of theology. Today, they would be Presbyterians, okay? <laughs> so it, 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 the, the important thing to understand is that the rabbis had calculated that the day of Pentecost, the very day of the year that is the day of Pentecost had also been the day that Moses had received the law on Mount Sinai. And so by the time of Jesus, we know this from the Talmud, the day of Pentecost had a twofold celebration. They were celebrating first fruits, but they were also celebrating the law that was given at Mount Sinai. <coughs> now Luke doesn't tell us that. That's something you only know if you do some outside research. But, but we know that that was the case. And knowing that was the case makes the passage that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2 all the more significant. You see, um, when they come together and celebrate both first fruits and Sinai, that's going to be important for understanding how the passage plays out. Remember with me for a moment what happened at Mount Sinai. The Israelites had gone over the Red Sea, gone through the Red Sea. They had uh, tramped through the wilderness for a number of weeks. They finally came to the foot of the mountain, and God told Moses, I want you to come up on this mountain, and I'm going to talk to you, and you tell the people to stay down there. Tell them that they are not to touch the mountain. Anyone who touches the mountain will die. If even an animal touches this mountain, it should be put to death. This is a very solemn occasion. This is a hinge moment, all right, a very significant hinge moment in the history of Israel. And so Moses ascends the mountain. He gives a stern warning to the people down below. He goes up to the top of the mountain. As he climbs the mountain, he hears a trumpet blowing. And it becomes louder and louder. There's nobody up else up there but him. Who's blowing the trumpet? Must have been an angel blowing the trumpet, blowing the trumpet. Thunder began to be heard, and lightning began to strike the mountain. Read, read the passage in, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, and you'll find it's a fascinating text. Uh, the lightning struck bushes and trees on the mountain, setting the mountain on fire. Here are the people down below watching this, and they just see this smoking, blazing mountain with a trumpet faintly blowing in the distance, and they know that their leader has gone up there. And what's he do? He meets with the Lord, and God gives him the law. What an awesome point in history. What a terrifying experience for someone like Moses. I think I'd have died of fright. I'd have had a heart attack just on the in process of going up to that mountain. But now God has given his people the law, These, this solemn word, this expectation. Before the giving of the law, God had given specific people individual commands, told Adam not to eat of the fruit, told Noah to build a boat, and find some other examples of individual conversations between God and someone, but never before had God said, here is the way that you are to live your lives, and this is the way that my people must live before me if they want to please me with their life. Never before. It's a hinge moment, and now everything will change after that. I'll come back to that in just a little bit and show you one of the ways 
in which it changed. They have the law, what we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. This becomes the foundation of Israelite society. It's the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution all rolled up into one, and even more than that, because it doesn't just apply to their political life and their economic life. <coughs> it applies to everything in their life. This law was something that immediately impacted them because one part of the law said, there's a day of the week that you're going to have to give to me. No ancient Near Eastern people had a Sabbath day. And of course, the purpose of the Sabbath was not just to take a day off. It'd be nice to have a day off. The purpose of the Sabbath was for, for the people to stop and consider the fact that God had created the world and that he rested. And their day of rest is not just a day of rest and watching football. Their day of rest is a day of honoring God. Every time they came to that seventh day of the week, they remembered the Lord. Every male of Israelite descent, even before the giving of the law, this goes all the way back to Abraham, every male was scarred in his flesh as a reminder of, fact, of the fact that they belonged to the Lord. There were daily reminders and weekly reminders that they belonged to God. And the purpose of all of this law and everything else is so that Yahweh could say, I am your God and you are my people and yet sometimes they still forgot. They still forgot time and again. Though their very culture and their very bodies reminded themselves of him to whom they belonged. Time and again they fell into idolatry. <laughs> the beginning of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the place you have to start. You don't start with, um, don't covet your neighbor's wife or thou shalt not steal, okay? You can get that stuff down and still miss the heart of the Ten Commandments because the heart of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. That's where it begins. And yet from time to time throughout the history of Israel, you find this as you read the stories in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and so on, some Israelite would take a young goat out of his flock and he'd sneak off in the middle of the night and go off to one of those hilltop shrines dedicated to another god and he would offer that young goat as a sacrifice. Why did they do that? They did it because deep in the heart, deep in their heart, in the back of their mind, they thought to themselves, you know, I, I love Yahweh and he's my God, but maybe these other gods have some power too. Maybe this matters. So what does it hurt? What does it hurt? I'm going to go to the temple on the Day of Atonement. I'm going to keep the Sabbath day. What does it hurt if I sneak off on a Tuesday night and offer a young goat as a sacrifice to Baal? I just uh, came from Denver I live in Kentucky, but I, I, went to, I flew in through Denver for a couple of days to see my mother, whom I hadn't seen in a number of months, uh, and um, always try to keep up with her as much as I can. But uh, this also happened to be the weekend of my 40th high school uh, reunion. I know m most of you are shocked. He doesn't look like he could have a 40th high school reunion. I, I appreciate that sentiment. I, I really do. <coughs> and my wife was not able to come with me. She really wanted to come this time. But she, my mother-in-law lives with us, and so she's been ill, so she had to stay there. And so I, I said, honey, I, I, I won't go. There was a Friday night meet and greet, and, and then they had a big dinner Saturday night, but I couldn't go to that. I said, you know, I'd kind of like to go. I'd like to see some friends. And, but I told her, I said, I, I realize that's a little awkward, and you're not going to be with me, and so I won't go if you don't want me to. And she said, no, go ahead and go. You know, I'll just check up on you several times right afterwards and make sure. And so, and, and I did see, I saw a number of good old friends, and I even saw a, a, a woman I started to say a young lady. She's not a young lady anymore. Saw a woman there, attractive woman, that I'd kind of had a crush on when I was in high school. And she was there without her husband, and I was there without my wife. And, you know, we had a little conversation. And um, 
you know, it, uh, of course nothing happened, just want to make sure you know that. We did have about a five-minute talk. But suppose I th said to myself, you know, when this is over, we should go out and see a movie or go out and have dinner or go out and do something. And I told my wife later, well, it's just like a, a little goat in the middle of the night, you know, it's not that big a deal. Uh, let me just say to you that if that would have happened, you would have been reading about me in the obituary column. <laughs> Uh, come, come Tuesday or Wednesday of next week when I got back. Uh, my wife doesn't believe in divorce, but she does believe in uh, murder, if, 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 it's, uh, <coughs> if it's appropriate. And she is armed, by the way. I bought her a, a pistol, and she has, a, she has a, a, a license to carry. So the whole point here is that, that, that God gave them the law, all right? And the law was to, was to hold them. Now, uh, I, I've got to hurry on here. Your pastor told me what my end time is, and I, I want to make sure we get these, these key issues down. When we come to Acts chapter 2, that Exodus 20 was a hinge moment. Here's the law, and you're expected to keep it now. I've been kind of lenient. In fact, Paul in Galatians and Romans makes this point very clear. You can read, uh, especially in Galatians, that's shorter, so you, if you want to find this, go read in Galatians. Paul says, before the giving of the law, God was kind of lenient, but after the giving of the law, he was not so lenient anymore. Because now they knew the standard. Here it is. Okay. Well, when we come to Acts 2, we find this next great hinge. Jesus is the hinge, and Acts chapter 2 is the hinge that gets us into the next step in what God is doing with his people. All right. So I want to say just three simple things about Acts chapter 2. And I lost my spot here on my, on my iPad, so let me find it again. All right. What is the first thing that we find? The first thing we find here is that, that as this hinge begins to creak in Acts chapter 2, we find the door opening to a new covenant. The, the door is opening to a new covenant. The old covenant was the Mosaic covenant where God gave the law. Okay? And as we've said, the people had, um, over and over again, they failed to keep the law. They fell into idolatry in all kinds of other ways. And so they were sent into captivity again and again and again, and finally a big Babylonian captivity where they were in captivity for 70 years. <coughs> but both before and during the Babylonian captivity, God spoke to two prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. We don't have time to look at the text, but Jeremiah 31 is one of the classic passages. Um, God spoke to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and he said, There's a day coming when I will write the law, not on tablets of stone, but on your heart. <coughs> I'm going to write the law on your heart. And that's one of the things that's taking place right here, because the Spirit of God comes into the room. It says that the, the rushing mighty wind, the word wind and spirit are the same words in the Greek New Testament. There's this rushing mighty spirit wind. It fills the whole house. Uh, tongues of fire distributed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. These are other languages. It becomes very clear in the rest of the passage that they received the miraculous ability to speak languages that they had never learned. That shows us that this is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be of the Holy Spirit if they just kind of babbled even if it was a beautiful babbling, okay? But this is languages. God was doing something here. And one of the ways in which he demonstrated that it was him doing it is that he gave them the ability to speak these other languages. I'm going to say something about the Spirit in just a minute. <coughs> but in this passage, their lives get changed because the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so now it's no longer a matter of it being a, a covenant on tablets of stone. It's no longer a matter of it being a covenant written down in the pages of a book, although it's here, and it's important for us to read it. 
Now it's no longer a matter of a covenant that we might walk into a church building or a synagogue or a temple and we see the words of the law written on the wall. Say, oh, that's our code to live by. We've got to make sure we remember that. No, now God has written it on the heart. And you know what that means? That means this is a better covenant. That means that it's not just something external to us now. It means that it's something that God has emblazoned on our spirits, that God has transformed us from the inside out. This makes this covenant, this fulfillment of this covenant, so so much a better thing than we find in the pages of the Old Testament. I'm not disrespecting the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. And the New Testament never says the Old Testament bad, the New Testament good. It says the Old Testament good, New Testament better. That's the difference. Old Testament a shadow, New Testament a realization of the shadow. So don't, everybody, don't ever let anybody tell you that there's something wrong with the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with it. For its day, it was God's revelation, but something new has come, something advanced, something greater. That, read the book of Hebrews. That's what it, it tells you over and over again. Nothing wrong with the law, except that it can't save you. But when God prints the law on your heart and he changes you from the inside out, it means that we have been grafted. Not only the, And by the way, go on to chapter 10 of this book and you'll find it's not just for these Jewish people in Jerusalem, it's for us. We've been grafted into the vine. The edge that we have is because this new covenant is a law written not just on tablets, not just in a book, but it's a reality that is transforming our lives every day. This is the hinge, all right? This is part of the hinge. It's not all of it, but part part of this opening of the new door means that something internal is changing in our lives. It's a thing that grips our souls so that we can be the kinds of people who, when others look into our eyes, they can see that a change has taken place. The eyes are the window of the soul, somebody said. I believe that. And I know that there have been many times in my life when I've had a conversation with somebody who was a saved person, maybe just recently saved, and you look into their eyes and you see God has changed their soul. God has changed them on the inside. And this is part of the creaking of this hinge, and it's so important. Now, I I wish we had time this morning to look at a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verse verse 11 through verse 22, where Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, and he says, (coughs) this is not just just something for Israel. In that passage, if you want to read it later, he says, we who uh, had no part in the promise have now been made partakers of the promise. We who had no covenant from God now have been included in the new covenant that God has made with Israel and, and, and made with us as well. We have been involved in this. We have been, uh, we are participants in this. So the question is, okay, we are being transformed. We're part of this new covenant. That's part of the turning of the hinge. How does it happen? That brings me to number two. And that is that the opening of this door, the creaking of this hinge, affects a new kind of relationship between us and God. It brings about a new kind of relationship between us and God. And it all has to do with the working of the Spirit that we read about in these verses just a moment ago. The Spirit came upon them, and tongues of fire sat upon their shoulders, and they spoke in other languages. These were just simply evidences of the fact that the Spirit had done this. Now, why is this so important? Um, one of the things that we, we have to do when we, uh, when we come to the, to the Bible is sometimes we have to try to pretend that we never read this before. Okay, I, I said that a while ago. Somebody mails you one of the Gospels. You've never read it before. Uh, something similar with passages like this. We've read it. We've read it. We've taught our kids these passages, and so they don't hit us with their full impact. Uh, but imagine being there that day. 
Imagine being one of the 120 people in that upper room. There's the 12 plus the others, 120 people. And suddenly, as you're praying together, and you know that Jesus said, Terry, in Jerusalem, something's about to happen. And then suddenly, a rushing mighty wind comes into the room, and there are tongues of fire licking all around, and you all begin to speak with, in other languages. Imagine being there for the first time. You, you, you didn't read about it. It happened to you. What would you think? Well, one of the important things for understanding how you would think is to think about what they believed about the Spirit already. Because if you read the Old Testament, you'll find some really interesting things about the Holy Spirit. And that is that the Holy Spirit um, doesn't show up that often in the lives of people. Only occasionally is someone in the Old Testament filled with the Spirit. A David, uh, a Saul for a short period of time, uh, uh, Samson, your pastor is going to preach about next Sunday. Samson, the Spirit comes upon Samson. He does r remarkable things. Uh, you'll, you'll find it occasionally in other places, but the Spirit doesn't show up that often. And think about this as well. If I were to ask you, let's say you're a 10-year-old Sunday school student here, boy or girl, and I were to ask you, where's God? You'd probably say one of two things. You'd say, well, God's in heaven, or you'd say God's everywhere. And both of those answers are true. Okay? There's a sense in which God is everywhere. The Psalm uh, the psalmist tells us that in Psalm 139. If I try to flee from your spirit, I can't do it. But the other, uh, the, the other aspect about the presence of God that's very clear in the Old Testament is that in some sense he's everywhere, but his manifest presence is not everywhere. That is, his presence in power is not everywhere. It shows up from time to time when one of those guys is filled with the Spirit. But it also shows up, and the primary place where the manifested presence of God is in the Old Testament is that he's in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, and then some four centuries later, Solomon builds a more permanent structure, the temple. Okay? And in both cases, when they dedicate the tabernacle and when they dedicate the temple, what happens? A cloud of smoke comes down and inhabits the tabernacle or the temple, specifically the back room, the Holy of Holies. And in Moses' case, of course, from time to time, as they were wandering in the wilderness, the cloud would rise up and it would begin to move. And Moses would say, there's the presence of God. We've got to follow. And he'd take them to another place, and they'd camp there, and then the presence of God would come back into the temple. And, of course, a tabernacle. And, of course, once a year, the, the chief priest would come to that Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for all the people. The chief priest could walk into the presence of God. Only one man, only once a year, coming into the manifest presence of God because the manifest presence was there. It was in the temple. But of course, on the day that Jesus died, at the hour of his death, people keeping records recorded that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Why? Matthew doesn't comment. Matthew's the one that tells us the story, but he doesn't tell us why. We have to wait seven weeks to figure out why. So we come to the day of Pentecost, and what do we find? The temple, the veil of the temple tore in two because the manifest presence of God was no longer there. And for 50 days, it awaited. It awaits until on the day of Pentecost, when God was ready, in fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist, I baptize you in water, but one is coming after me who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. One of the Gospels includes the word fire, those tongues of fire that sat upon them. And so if you were a Jew standing in that room that day and you were praying and suddenly the, the wind begins to roar and the fire begins to burn and you sense something taking place in your heart that's never happened before and you suddenly begin to speak a language that you'd never spoken before, you would have in some sense an absolute sense of, oh my Lord, what is happening here? How can this be? 
We are not the temple. The temple's over there. We are not great men like David and Saul and Samson. What is happening to us? And what was happening to them was that their very lives were being seized by the manifest presence and power of God and transformed because the eschatological spirit that had dwelt in the ministry of Jesus was now coming to dwell in their ministry as well, and their lives as well. And they now were coming to know the Lord, not in the sense that they would go to the synagogue and some rabbi would read a text and say, here's what you know about God. Now they knew him because he had come to indwell them in every sense in the way that he had indwelt the temple for the previous thousand years. Wow. If you think about it like that, It takes your breath away. It was a transforming moment for them. But here's the interesting thing for us to keep in mind. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells them, we have also been baptized in the same spirit. On the day that you were saved, something happened in your life that was every bit as real and every bit as transformative as what happened to those people who became the, tw- the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's happened to you as well if you've come to know Christ as your Savior. This is the great advantage of the new covenant. It's something. It takes, us, it takes our breath away and makes us realize that God has really done something in our hearts. But there's one more thing, and I want to cover this quickly because then I've got a conclusion I want to bring to you. There's more. This opening of the hinge certainly brings the new covenant. The opening of this hinge, the opening of this door also brings a new kind of relationship with the Lord because the Spirit comes to indwell their lives and our lives as well. But there's one final thing. The opening of the door entailed a new basis for forgiveness. Remember that all this is happening right next door to the temple. The temple celebration of Pentecost is taking place. Remember that the temple indicator, the temple pointed to the law. The first thing that I said a moment ago, it pointed back to the Mosaic Covenant. It was the, it was the greatest reminder in the lives of the people of the fact that there had been a Moses who had given them the law. That's what the temple represents. The temple also represented the fact that the, the spiritual presence of the Lord, the manifest presence of the Lord was in that building. We've already seen that both of those things have changed because of the day of Pentecost. But there's a third thing that the temple represents, and that third thing is changing as well. The third thing the temple represents is when you sin against the Lord, you got to go get a lamb or a goat or a calf or a turtle dove or something out of your flock, and you got to take it, put a tether on it, walk it down to the temple, give it to the priests so that they can kill it on the altar in front of the temple so that you can experience forgiveness. But in the sermon that Peter preaches, which you'll just have to read on your own later, uh, in the sermon that he preaches, especially beginning in verse 22, he tells us that now what has happened is Jesus Christ killed by the hands of godless men in Jerusalem. And he makes that point very clear in verses 22 and 23. You wicked men took him, but he was delivered up to you by the predetermined counsel of God. There's one of those theological dilemmas we were talking about, Pastor. Uh, so, so who killed Jesus? Uh, the, the wicked people who killed him or the, or the fact that the Father delivered him up? Well, you figure it out on your own, all right? And get the answer, send me an email, all right? You wicked people killed Jesus, but because he died on the cross for your sins, there is no longer the necessity for the, the blood of bulls and goats, no longer a necessity for these burnt offerings. And so here they are, and, and Peter's preaching this sermon on the temple grounds. It's as if he's looking back and saying, you know what? That thing is no longer important. It's no longer important because we have a new covenant based on what God has done to the heart. It's no longer important because the Spirit of the Lord is not in that Holy of Holies anymore. He's in my life. 
And it's also not important because it doesn't do you any good to take a lamb or a goat down to that altar and give it to a priest to sacrifice because there's now a new basis for forgiveness. And the new basis for forgiveness is that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins and mine. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture when you understand it in the light of their Jewishness and their Jewish experience. It tells us that God is moving. This hinge, is, is this door is opening as the hinge creaks, and it's introducing these people into the next stage, the next phase into what God is doing. And again, if we had time to read on into chapter 8 and, and find the Samaritans experiencing it, and into chapters 10 and 11 and seeing the Gentiles experience it, it would just point us to the fact that the hopes and fears of all the years really were met in Jesus, but not just in the manger, in all of this that extends right up into the day of Pentecost as well. Now, I have to say one final thing here about this passage and about how the people who were there that day would have experienced those events. Remember, we have to remind ourselves that these are people that knew the Old Testament you know, thoroughly. The, the young men who were part of these events, they were there in Jerusalem on that day uh, because they'd gone through a process of becoming young men. Uh, most of them had probably memorized the first five books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Okay, that was just part of their training. And so I want to take us back to that Old Covenant again because the, the, I, the contrast of Old Covenant and New Covenant is just all over Acts chapter 2. It's here. But there's one final little piece of the puzzle that I need to bring to you here this morning, and this is it. If you go back to Exodus 20, you read the story about Moses getting the law in the Old Covenant. You know what happened? Moses climbed the mountain. He went up. God was there. He went up. He met with the Lord. God gave him a mighty gift, a wonderful gift. It's the law. It's the ten. It's the Decalogue, whatever term you want to use for it. He gave him the ten. And then Moses came down from the mountain. And I'm sure that deep in his heart he was filled with joy that I'm going to bring this down and give it to the people below, and they're going to rejoice, and we're going to have a great revival, and the Lord's really going to bless. But, of course, he'd been up there for some time, and they had thought he was dead. They thought all the thunder and lightning and everything had killed him. And so what they had done is they decided, well, look, we're just going to melt our, our gold down. We're going to make ourselves a new god. We'll worship this new god and go back to Egypt, back where we had a lot of stuff to eat. And so they built the golden calf. And by the time that Moses had come down, not only had they made the golden calf, but they were partying and they were reveling. And, and just about every one of those Ten Commandments that uh, God had given to Moses were now being bre broken at the, foot of the, at the foot of the mount by these people. They were, they were having an, an, an orgy of celebration of their freedom from God. Basically, that was taking place. And so Moses gets down there, and he's filled with wrath, and he breaks the tablets of the law. And the Lord speaks to him, and he says, uh, you've got to do something. Remember what I said a while ago, that before the giving of the law, God was lenient in many ways. But now that the law is here, everything has changed. You can see a classic example of this in Exodus 32. I said last night in the, in the sermon, it was in Numbers. It's in Exodus 32. He comes down from the mountain, and what does Moses do? He breaks the law, and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites come to him. The priestly party. They're not, they're not part of the party. All right, they come to him, and Moses says, arm yourselves. If you haven't read this passage in a while, you need to go back home and read it, because it's, it's a stark reminder. They arm themselves, and Moses sends them among the people, and you know what they do? They kill 3,000 Israelites. God is a holy God, and he will not brook our disobedience. 
So Moses goes up, he gets a great gift, he brings it down, and 3,000 people die. But in Acts chapter 2, as you come to verse 37, when they heard this, the people were pierced to their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Moses goes up on the mountain, receives a mighty gift, comes down. The people are in rebellion. 3,000 people are killed. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, goes up. He ascends to the Father. The Father gives him a mighty gift. Not the gift of the law, but the gift of the Spirit. He sends the gift of the Spirit down. And as he sends the gift of the Spirit down, 3,000 people are saved. The, the comparison of these things would not have been lost on a Jewish audience. By the way, this is also proof that they were Baptists because they counted them all. <laughs> and so a hinge has turned. But there's one final hinge that has yet to turn. And it's found in Romans chapter 11. My time is short, so I will not read the passage. But in Romans chapter 11, really all the way through the passage, but especially down in verses 35 and 36, we find Paul writing, you know, Israel, this nation that God chose, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people to whom God gave the law under Moses, the people who found their greatest expression, their greatest exemplar in the one Israelite, Jesus. That Jesus who made his ministry among the Jewish people of his day and who sent his spirit upon the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, but then who opened it up in a wider way to the Gentiles as we come to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapters 10 and 11. And for a time, it seems that the hearts of the Jews have been hardened, and they have. Not that many Jewish Christians in comparison to the number of Jews who are in the world today. We wonder why not. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was an Israelite. But in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, there's a day coming when the hardness of the Jewish heart will be softened by the Lord so that all Israel will be saved. In other words, there will come a day when they will come to Christ. It doesn't tell us when, but all the hints seem to be that it's connected with the end times. I know your pastor, like me, kind of thinks it looks like we're getting close to end times. I don't know that for sure. I still think we ought to make sure we provide for youth ministry for 50 years from now. But, uh, you know, plan for, plan for 50 years and, and pray for Jesus coming today or tomorrow or the next day. But here's the thing. Those Israelites who have kind of lived in this period of being hardened, they're not, it doesn't look like they're still grafted into the tree. God's going to graft them back in. We need to pray. You need to pray for individual Jewish people that you know. You need to pray that God will expand the ministry of groups like Jews for Jesus that are going to be here tonight. You need to pray that God will begin a mighty work, whether it happens in the land of Israel or whether it happens with Jewish people living in New York City or Philadelphia or some other place or right here in your own, your own community, whatever it might be. Pray that, that God will begin to stir the hearts of Jewish people to come to Christ. Pray that at the coming of the Lord, he will find waiting for him millions and millions of people who have named the name of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as part of their heritage. Pray that God will do that in their lives. Thank the Lord that he's included us 
as part of the new covenant experience, but pray that God will reach them as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today that you have saved us. We thank you that you have brought us into covenant relationship with you. I'm a Gentile, Father. I don't deserve being part of the covenant. If not for the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, my people would probably still be burning incense to some pagan idol someplace. But Lord, because of your love for us, you brought us into this covenant. Thank you for that. Thank you for changing our lives. We pray, Lord, that you will continue that process until you sweep into your kingdom millions and millions of those who are of the faith of Abraham. May they who are of the faith of Abraham be also of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Would you appreciate our friend? Let me, uh, let me say this, and this includes those of you over in the venue. Uh, when I got back, it was uh, late Friday, I was on a vacation, and I came over here uh, to the church on Saturday and was reading through some of my mail, and I had received a letter, and at some moment, I, I want to read the, the letter to you from somebody who um, came to church one day, didn't really know why they were here, they were just here. Didn't believe in God, just kind of were making, I think, mom and dad happy. And when they got here, something was happening in their lives, and they couldn't express what it was. And the singing started, and there was something happening. Um, there was a moment when we were worshiping the Lord through giving, and God was doing something. Something was happening in their lives, and they're expressing this in this letter. It's a younger guy. And then you got up, and I don't even know what you, what you were talking about. Uh, something was, was just going on in my life. And I know that when you come to a place like this, whether you're in this room or you're over in the venue, that like what took place in Acts chapter 2, there's a rushing of the wind. There's a rushing of the Spirit. And God begins to do something in your lives, and you can't even figure it out. It, it's happened to all of us in here. And maybe that's you. And here you are, and you, you, you can't even express it. You, you're like those, those men and, and women there in Acts chapter 2. And something's happening in your life. Well, we have a place called the altar room, and there's one over in the venue. And it's a place where the spiritual leaders of our church, last night there was a whole lot of people in there. And you could in just a moment get up and make your way into the altar room and over in the venue, it's right over there also. And that's a place where the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the elders of our church would love to, to, to pray with you and, and, and help you understand maybe what's happening in your life. Because it can be a, a real confusing moment. What, what's going on? What's happening? And it's, it's God, His Spirit moving in your life. This is a, a hinge moment in your life. And nothing will be the same. The day you give your life to Jesus Christ, nothing's the same. Oh, you can look back and see your life as it used to be, but once you walk through that door, everything changes. 
God comes into your life and forgives you of your sin and begins to transform your life, you need to take advantage of it. And that's what that room is, is for. And then listen, family. Uh, tonight, right up on this platform, Jews for Jesus is going to be back, as Dr. Brand said. And they're going to transform this stage. And they're going to do a presentation that they call Christ and the Passover. And, and, and it'll just be really great. There just won't be anything that you will do tonight that will be more meaningful in your life than coming with your family and being a part of this. And so make sure you're, you're here. It's at 6 p.m. We have limited child care available. But please change your plans or whatever because you, you need to be here. And then last but not least, you know, Bobby I told you about the new series we're going to begin next week unless the Lord comes back. And as Dr. Brand said, I am going to start men with um, Samson. And guys, listen, I've thought a lot about you, and, and I've been praying for you. And next week, guys, you don't want to miss this. If you have a friend, you need to bring them. Maybe there's somebody that hadn't been around much lately. Maybe it's summer, you know, and you're thinking, ah, you know what, I'm going to take a break. No, don't take a break. Men, listen to me. Whether you're married or you're single, doesn't matter. You need to be here next week. There is a lot we are going to learn from this man's life. He, he not only was the, you know, the, the, the Rambo of the Bible, if you will, but he was also the playboy of the Bible. But he was also listed in God's Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. There's a lot we're going to learn. Now, ladies, you're going to learn a lot also. We're all going to learn from this one man's life. But, guys, this is something that's going to be for you, especially. And I don't want you to miss it. And you need to go home, look at your calendars, and say, you know what? I need to make sure I'm there. The pastor, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is telling you, I need to be here. And you really do. Because I, I, just, I just believe God's going to do something great. And then I'm going to see you here all tonight. Why don't you stand and let me pray for you, okay? Father, thanks again for this time. And I'm grateful for these incredible hinge moments that we find in Scripture. And in Acts chapter 2, boy, everything changed. And now, God, you made yourself available to all in a really special way. And that doesn't mean that you have forsaken your, your chosen people, but God, I'm thankful, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is in my life, in my friends' lives here, Lord. As we leave here, may we remember the fact that we don't leave you here. You're not in this building waiting for us to show up next week. We take you with us wherever we go. You live within us. Father, thanks for your goodness. And I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, Lord bless you. Okay, we'll see you here tonight, Lord willing.